Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date is December 10th, 2023. Welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense, Canada's Issues, in about an hour. It is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC. Well, back. I'm back. So, how was it, my man? Ah, it was a great vacation. Uh, my wife and I finally got away. Uh, just the two of us. Like we've we we did a, a trip where it was just the two of us last year for the first time, but we uh, had someone stay with our kids. And this year, we we left our kids on their own. But uh, don't worry, my daughter is an adult, so <laughs> she she uh, she looked after our son and the. I mean, they're both. My daughter's 18 and my son's 15. So, and, uh, and it turns out the house did not burn down. The dog did not starve to death. And, uh, and the kids are both still alive. So it's, uh, it was a good vacation with my wife and I, uh, uh, had a great time. And, um, but I did want to talk about a little about what I saw. Uh, my wife and I went to Belize. And for anybody who's, who's ever thought about going to Belize, uh, there's some things you should know. Uh, Belize, <laughs> Bel Belize is amazing. Um, there's, it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty great country. There's some amazing Mayan ruins. We went to two different sites. It was, it was fantastic. Uh, we went to uh, the Island of Ambergris Key, uh, spent some time in San Pedro and up at secret beach and uh and then we uh we spent some time inland uh near the guatemalan border uh where we uh stayed with some friends of ours who actually did sell everything they owned in canada and moved to belize and uh bought a uh, a resort up in the mountains oh and uh and they've got this beautiful resort up in the mountains. It's near um, San Ignacio. And uh, so the Shenantanich, um, uh Mayan ruins are up in that area, which were just outstanding. One thing, they could never, ever get away with anything they do in that country in Canada <laughs> there's the okay so we're allowed to climb to the top of these you know Mayan temples there so we're right at the top not a guardrail in sight not a handrail in sight not a uh the closest thing there was to a safety measure was a little sign that said do not sit on the edge <laughs> that was it Otherwise, you can walk right up to the edge, and if you fall, you are you're falling 150 feet before you hit anything, and there's nothing there to protect you. Uh, it's it's so foreign to how something would be treated in Canada. In Canada, we would just ruin it, right? We would throw railings all around. We would have warning signs everywhere. We would have you know all this stuff that would just make the thing hideous. Uh, whereas there, they just leave it all natural and say, climb it at your own risk. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's a pretty amazing place. Um, now the level of poverty 
is a level of poverty I've never seen before. Um, it's quite shocking, actually. Um, a lot of people don't even have the means to cook food because they don't have electricity or they don't have um, a stove. <laughs> uh, so they buy their food from someone who does have the means to make food on the side of the road. And they, they've just made everything at home and they brought it all there in, in their pots and they dish it out into styrofoam containers. Yes, they do still use styrofoam containers in the third world. And I will tell you, uh, I don't know what it is about poverty and no regard whatsoever for the environment but that is the case they just and i noticed it in mexico the last time i was in mexico too there's just garbage everywhere um but i've never seen garbage like this like it's just garbage is everywhere um now i don't get me wrong the country's beautiful the people are fantastic like we never met a single person who had a bad word for us on the whole trip. In fact, like we would be walking past, uh, like when we were in San Pedro, my wife and I were walking past a construction site on the beach and the workers just stopped, waved at us, said hello and have a nice day. And you wouldn't get that in Canada. It's, it's like I said, it is a pretty awesome place, but it is definitely third world. Um, Belize City is a place I would just avoid at all costs next time. It, it that place is kind of scary. Um, like my wife and I were driving through part of the town on our last day because we uh we stayed in Belize City the last two nights before we flew uh back home. And there was a part we were driving through the city and just everybody was staring at us because I guess they don't see white people in that part of town. <laughs> and I just said, okay. I don't feel good here. Like we got to get out. And, uh, and I just found the first way out of there. Um, some interesting stuff I found out when I was there, like the, the, the 10 most, the 10 wealthiest Belizeans are all politicians. Uh, all the politicians live in big fancy mansions that their salaries don't, um, justify uh it's um it's a pretty corrupt place uh the police are very corrupt the 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 politicians are extremely corrupt uh like take this for an example when when uh, there's an election happening there right now and when the opposing party wins an election a good portion and i believe someone told me it was in the vicinity of 50 depending on who wins but between 50 and 75 percent of the public servants all lose their jobs if the opposing party wins the election and then they just hire all their family members and friends to work these jobs it's it's if you think if you think it's bad in canada check out a third world country but <laughs> It, it, but that does not mean that it's not bad in Canada, because it is. Because one thing I discovered while I was on my holiday, and it has nothing to do with Belize, it has to do with Canada, 
is that when I was looking up all the all the wealthiest Belizeans and found that all the top ten are all either the prime minister, the current prime minister, or former prime ministers, or just former ministers of the government, I thought, huh, I wonder, I wonder what Justin Trudeau's personal wealth uh, is sitting at right at this time. So I looked things up. Justin Trudeau in 2014, when he was running for the leadership of the Liberal Party, uh, reported a personal wealth of $1.2 million. And today, uh, he has a personal wealth of $135 million. Nice. He makes $400,000 a year. And he has increased his personal wealth by $134 million in eight years. How is that possible and why has nobody brought this to our attention? Yeah, no kidding. That's uh, that's quite a return on investment. Yeah. And um, it's quite shocking, actually. Yeah. No uh, and, wow. and I'm and I'm really, really shocked that nobody has brought this to our attention before. Yeah. Geez. But uh, but overall, um, my trip to Belize was was great. The food, by the way, is fantastic. We never had a bad meal the entire time we were there, um, which I cannot say about Mexico. Mexico, the food is terrible unless you go to a good restaurant. Um, the food in Belize is phenomenal, and it doesn't matter where you go. Um, we, uh, I, I bought some really nice cigars there. I bought some amazing rum, the best rum I've ever had. It's called Tiburon Rum. You can't even buy it in Canada right now. I think you can buy it in 42 of the U.S. states. So if you're ever across there, buy some Tiburon Rum. And bring that back with you. It's amazing. Um, it's uh, yeah. It's just we we had a great time. The island of Ambergris Key. Your only mode of transportation over there is golf cart. Um, <clears throat> there are the odd vehicles. Most of those vehicles are taxis. Um, they're minivans, um, but there really is not any room for them on the road. <laughs> it's it's uh, golf carts for a reason because the roads are very narrow. Uh, but everybody's on a golf cart and it's golf cart chaos. It's, uh, it, it's, it's actually quite hilarious the first day you're on a golf cart on Ambergris Key. You're just driving around going, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And after a couple of days of that, you, you're pretty much actually getting used to it. The only thing is, don't ever get caught in a torrential downpour when you're on a golf cart. Because there are no doors, and it sucks. Because <laughs> that happened to us. That happened to us. We got absolutely drenched right through every layer of like clothing. Our, you know, My underwear was soaked. It was like we were just soaked my wallet was soaked my phone was covered in water and it was in my pocket like we were just it was uh it was quite hilarious one thing we did do the so belize has uh the longest uh living 
reef in the world. And so we got to go out and snorkel on the reef. We snorkeled with sharks and stingrays. And um, uh, and after we did a morning of, of snorkeling, we uh, we headed over to another island called Key Culker. And we went to the Lazy Lizard Bar and had some lizard juice. And if you're ever on Key Culker, have some lizard juice. It is... The drink is neon green. There are five different liqueurs. They refuse to tell you what's in it. And uh, so don't even bother asking. I did. And I asked. And uh, they just said, nope, won't tell you. And uh, and they so our tour guides on the snorkeling tours told us, don't let them suck you into giving you a, a, a lizard juice because you're going to regret it. So I had two <laughs> <laughs> and uh, whew, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> so, yeah. But, uh, but overall, yeah, the trip was great and um, I'm glad, but I will tell you, I am very glad to be back in Canada. And if one thing about that trip, one thing about that trip that did um, happen to me was that it, kind of killed my romantic idea of selling everything and moving to Belize. Um, Cause I could not live there full time. Well, good. Cause we need you in Canada. So, uh, so welcome back. Glad you made it in one piece. Thank you. And well, now let's talk about Canada. We've got a ton of housekeeping notes to take care of, and then we'll get right into the show after that. Uh, first off the hop, Listener Nikki, I don't know how new to the show that she is, but she did uh, start commenting on a post of ours. Then we had a little bit of a Facebook Messenger exchange. And, well, thank you, Nikki, for pumping our tires. It was uh, really nice to hear her say that I never really liked politics until I found your show. And now I make sure to listen every week. Um, further, she said, I hope the government doesn't bleep over your podcast because you guys are the only real news source anymore so uh thank you for that nikki that was very uh very kind words wow yeah thank you i mean it's not true there are some others that are that are definitely trustworthy sources um i would say true north is one of them uh but but thank you very much for the compliment that that means a lot to us yeah exactly so i thought that was that was great um another housekeeping note is I saw on an X post as we were going through and it was re referring to, to Toronto politics. And I saw some guy comment, better call chairman Chow. And I'm like, Hey, that, that was ours. So uh, <laughs> looks like we're, we're, we're extending some reach. So uh, thank you. Random X poster. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> and um, Max Valakat, who is Justin Trudeau's new director of communications, who proudly displays his he, him pronouns in his, X bio. Still oh, congratulations. My, yeah, he still has not accepted my follow request. Uh, how about you, Lewis? Nope. <laughs> he has not accepted my follow request. It's funny how the director of communications for the prime minister has closed off all communication with himself. Like, it, I, I, I can't get through to that guy. And I've asked, you know, it, it's funny that you have to actually, you know, request permission to follow his X account. Um, but yeah, he's not approved us. I mean, all he has to do is just look at, you know, 
one or two of my posts and and he wasn't gonna approve me <laughs> yeah, but, and I, I thought the same thing because all he has to do is go through one page of my post and he'll see a lot of pro maxime bernier or uh pierre poliev stuff and be like yep that guy's done so <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um we, i talked last week about the tmx pipeline and it was almost done it was 98 point or 97.8 percent completed and they were looking to head to go to march <laughs> i really gotta stop believing what i read because yes they were ready to go and yep they were going to have to shrink the size of their pipe for a 2.2 kilometer stretch in between uh, hope and chilliwack bc to get by some other environmental hurdle and the canadian energy regulator said regulator said okay until this past week, they decided to say, nope, 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 you guys can't do that anymore. And when TMX said, why not? The Canadian Energy Regulator actually said, we're not going to tell you why not. And you'll have to wait to, until we give you the reason why not. So in other words, it's being stopped for ideology. So who knows when the TMX will get done, if ever. Unreal. I mean, okay, that was supposed to be an $8 billion pipeline, and it has the costs of that pipeline. You, be, you better sit down for this. They've exceeded $40 billion now. Yeah, I mean, this this thing is, it, it's going to be hard to see how it's going to make money when it does finally get done. But of course, producers were ramping up production, anticipating that they could start pouring through that pipeline in March. And so there's going to be an oil glut on this side of the border coming soon. Yeah. All yeah. right. G great job. Great yeah. job. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, and this this is this this just goes right to the heart of what we've been saying for the past. How long have we been doing this show? We've been doing this show for what five years? Yeah, almost six in February. So. Oh, okay. So almost you know six years basically. We've been saying how anything government touches goes to hell. And that the government can't do anything well. Well, this just proves it. You know, this is one more example of how government doesn't do anything well and government shouldn't do anything that's supposed to be productive. Yep, exactly. So we'll stick on the pipeline front. We had talked a while back about Enbridge Line 5. And I was that this is the uh, oil pipeline that goes uh, underneath the, the Mackinac Straits in Lake Michigan and Huron. And it supplies, actually, every drop of Alberta oil that goes to Ontario, or almost all of it, goes through this Line 5 into Sarnia, and etc. Also, it pumps a lot of oil for Michigan and Ohio. And the Michigan governor was trying to shut the line down. And you and I said, do it. Do it. Let them feel the pain and understand they need oil. Well, no, it's actually been approved now. So it's... Uh, the only barrier now to uh, building that tunnel over the pipes on line five to protect them would be if the U.S. Corps of Army Engineers decides to to pull the plug on it. But I don't really see them getting involved. So uh, I think line five is safe. Yeah, well, surprise, surprise. Well, exactly. Yeah, I, I actually am surprised. So uh, especially with Gretchen Whitmer being being governor of Michigan. So. I'll be honest, I'm not surprised um, because... Only only a complete idiot would sabotage their own, well, state or province or country 
And so I knew that it was never going to happen. Um, I, I actually would have been more surprised had they actually gone through with it. Yeah, well, looks like it's good. So uh, uh, good news for, for the energy sector. Okay. Yeah. So I had mentioned last week that Google is now ponying up an extra $100 million subsidy for the lamestream media. I wasn't sure if CBC was going to benefit from that or not because they were not part of the $172 million bailout that we now give them. And it turns out that, yes, CBC will be a benefactor of the, the Google subsidy to the tune of about 30% of it because it's based on the number of full-time journalists an organization has. And even with the upcoming budget cuts to CBC or the, the layoffs, I should say, they still will get to benefit from a Google subsidy on top of the $1.2 billion taxpayer subsidy. Yay, lamestream media. Okay, so what exactly is this subsidy? Because I this was announced, I believe, when I was in Belize. So I haven't done any like research on this. What exactly is it? Okay, so when back when Bill C-18 was in the works, the federal government was pressing big tech to help subsidize the news, the lamestream media for posting on their platforms. Now, Meta okay. used to cave in. Rachel Curran just gave the middle finger to uh, the government, and I support them for doing that. Google finally decided that, okay, we'll, we'll pony up $100 million to be distributed via a collective to the lamestream media. I hate the word collective because it sounds so communist, but of course, Karina Gould was all over it. Big surprise. Or no, I'm sorry, not uh, Pascal Saint-Onge. My bad. <laughs> okay, so this is, is it, so, all right. So, okay, because when it was, when you called it a subsidy, I was like, I, I don't remember hearing anything about a subsidy. I just remember hearing about the tax that they were going to charge these um on like the 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 big media um giants right the internet so, media so instead of a tax they're just going to hand over a subsidy so okay all right so okay i'm 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 on board now i understand okay so now this is this is danger real dangerous territory because i mean this is almost as bad as say the government giving the media a subsidy um, because then, you know, those the, the, the media is not going to, uh, you know, criticize the, the government because that's kind of, that's, you know, it's biting the hand that feeds you. Well, Google is essentially an arm of, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, an unofficial arm of the U S government, uh, because it's so heavily, um, there's so much involvement of the government in Google. There, there's a lot. Um, I mean, and we we all know about it because Elon Musk blew it all up when he bought Twitter and released the Twitter files and showed how different arms of the, you know, different departments of the government have official uh, representatives in, you know, Twitter, in Facebook, in Google, and in other you know, high tech or, uh, you know, the uh, high tech or what do you call it? The technology companies, right? And so they, and now they're giving money to our, our media outlets, yet they are caving to U.S. government demands on censorship, 
and things like that. And now they're giving money to our media. What what do you what kind of pressures do you think they're going to put on the 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 Canadian media now for on their reporting? Yep, exactly right. Yep, I am uh, kind of wondering about that myself. So um, now with Google out of the way, Liberal MP Ken Hardy. That was the name I was looking for last week when I was talking about the person who called Pierre Poilievre a creep. I forgot to write his name down. So in this week, we've got it, Ken Hardy. And Lewis, you would uh, have, have actually noticed him too when you came back. You were scrolling through and you found something else, a little gem of his. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to start off by saying that Ken Hardy is a piece of crap. Um, yep. Yeah. So there's a couple of different quotes that, that, that he, uh, you know, he, the, the things that he said on Twitter or on X that I'm going to tell you one of which is, um, well, Ken Hardy is the, the guy who, uh, said that he basically hopes that Pierre Poiliev holds his breath indefinitely. Um, okay. So we've got a sitting liberal MP, who is basically hoping for Pierre Poiliev to die. Um, he's also the guy who posted on X that he gave this rundown of Pierre Poiliev's life. And, uh, and he says, you know, in on such and such a date when Pierre Poiliev was, I believe, 21 years old, his dad Divorced his mom, came out as gay, and this explains Pierre Polyev's hatred for the LGBTQ community. And which, this is getting quite desperate on the Liberals' behalf. When you have to start going after things like this and start making... Because, I mean, that, I'm sorry, but those those comment that comment saying that he actually hates the lgbtq community and it's because of his gay dad that's slanderous and he could be looking at a lawsuit because that wasn't the only horrible comment in that single post that he made there was more i can't find the post at the moment he may have deleted it but it was ugly like really ugly and uh this is this is the level of desperation that the liberals are facing right now. Oh yeah, and we're going to talk a bit more about that in the the show topics too cuz it's uh yeah, we'll leave it at that. We'll get that in the show topics. So the last housekeeping note I want to bring up is finally um we have found out how much Canada paid for all these uh vaccines for the Wuhan virus. Now, turns out Canada paid Hope you're all sitting down, Canada. Uh, listener Bill, hope if you're driving, set your coffee down. We paid the highest price in the world for Pfizer doses. We paid $38 per dose. Now, I didn't I thought Israel paid the highest because they seem to have gotten the, the vaccines first, but no, no. Canada paid $38 a dose for a vaccine that cost $1.60 to produce in Canadian dollars. So, um, yeah, that's a pretty good markup if you're Pfizer. And we ordered billions. How does that make you feel, Canada? Well, how about this? Um, 
This year alone, 14.4 million doses of those vaccines were tossed because nobody was getting vaccines. There's another 4 million that are uh, another 4 million that are approaching their expiry date as well. And so that's that'll be 18 million doses that will be tossed in the garbage this year alone. And we've got and we've got millions more on order. Ouch. At that $38 a dose. Yep. Like this is this is hmm. This kind of brings me back to Justin Trudeau's personal fortune. Um <laughs> but yeah, I'm not gonna go there. I'm just gonna say, hmm. Things exactly. that make things that make you go, hmm. Yep, and we will definitely leave it just there. <laughs> okay, Canada, uh, thanks for sticking with us through housekeeping. On the show today, La La Liberal Land, Uneven Stephen, Unhinged, The Filibuster, Housing Hell, Crime, and more. Where do you want to start, sir? Uh, let's, let's start with um, Crime. Let's do that. You had uh, brought out some statistics for me that were, well, actually, really, really disheartening. Yeah. So the crime stats for uh, for 2020, well, I guess for the first half of 2023, are out. And violent crime was up 5% over the same time last year. <clears throat> And last year, it was up 6% from the year previous. Now, liberal understandings would say violent crime is coming down because it's 5% as opposed to 6% last year, you know, because that's how they determine that inflation is coming down. Um, but that's not what it really means. It means it's up 11% from two years ago. Um Robbery has increased by 15%. I was a victim of robbery earlier this year when $5,000 of my company's tools were stolen. So I can attest to that increase. Extortion. This one is the one that actually kind of got me. Extortion is up by 39% over last year. Wow. And so that to me shows a desperation by Canadians that they're willing to blackmail uh, other people because they're that desperate for money. You know, homicide is up by 8% and level one sexual assault is up by 3%. Like this is the liberal legacy. Yeah, it, it is. It's totally. I mean, that extortion figure is still still got me got me stunned. That's, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm sure that the the opioid crisis has something to do with that as well, or the the drug crisis in general. But man, that's staggering. It is. Yeah, I mean, like like that's to me extortion would be one of the most personal crimes. You know, like you're 
you're willing to blackmail someone like you're willing to extort money from someone and that's just cruel like it's really cruel and i mean i'm not saying that the homicide rate is isn't cruel either but it's there's just something personal about extorting like extortion right like that, there's just something really personal about that yeah that's nasty yeah but- yeah, there's all kind of avenues someone can go down with that. That's uh, wow, and mm-hmm. and you look at it, then you think, okay, well, policing is not in crisis, but I mean, you hear the the RCMP are having a recruiting problem, and other police services report not recruiting problems, but they say there's a lower number of applicants for for police services across the country. So, um, well, yeah, what do you expect when the government when the government spent three years demonizing the police? And saying how they're all evil and that we should defund them and all of this. And then you and then you go, what? Nobody wants to be a cop anymore. Yeah, it's exactly. Man. Yeah. So let's lower the standards. Let's say that you, you know, you're you should be allowed to have purple hair and facial tattoos and all kinds of stuff. <gasps> surprise, surprise. That didn't solve the problem either. Yeah exactly so um <laughs> so let's move on let's talk a little bit about the liberals and uh well we've got liberal party of ontario and the feds to talk about so recently it would have been last weekend uh bonnie crombie was a elected liberal leader of ontario so she's now the leader of the, the ontario liberals she's still currently mayor of mississauga and intends to stay in that job at least until spring to get the the city's budget through that's up to her because she doesn't currently have a seat um what's really interesting is on the eve of her election victory there was a by-election in kitchener center where the green party candidate won the seat which which is fine i mean that could just be a protest vote but what makes it interesting for bonnie crombie is that her liberal party placed fourth in that by-election so um well guess you're off to a good start young lady <laughs> well, sounds to me like they're following in the footsteps of the federal party. Well, and interestingly enough, she actually was a one-term liberal MP in Mississauga, so she does have that connection. And what I thought was funny is just like the federal liberals, the Ontario liberals decided to hand out memberships for free. So they had 100,000 members going into this leadership vote, and only 22,000 members bothered to vote. This Canada is why you charge even just five bucks for a party membership so that members are actually committed and not just saying, okay, yeah, okay, I'll take a membership, but I don't give a crap. Yeah. Wow. 22% voter turnout for a leadership race. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, that's worse than civic elections. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's horrible. And uh, yeah, that makes you really look like you've got legitimacy as a leader when, 22% came out to vote and you only ended up with 56% on the third ballot. Yeah. Wow. That's not good. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. So, in the <laughs> ultimate of ironies, um, Doug Ford immediately comes out on the attack on Bonnie Crombie and talks about the fact that she's connected to developers and has a house in the Hamptons. That rich elitist is so out of touch with average Ontarians. And I'm like, <laughs> Um, Mr. Ford, <laughs> you had developers at your daughter's wedding. Um, 
you have a vacation property. You come from a very wealthy, well-connected family, but <laughs> yeah, Bonnie Crombie is the elitist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. You know, this just points to um, the ever-increasing you know, disconnect that politicians have with the average Canadian. That's a, yeah, a really good way to put it. And uh, well, and actually speaking of that, um, the interim Ontario Liberal leader, John Fraser, announced he was retiring and well, he got a nice send off video message from an old friend who just happened to send him a video from the office of the Speaker of the House of Commons, who just happened to be wearing the official robe of the Speaker of the House of Commons. Hashtag inappropriate. Could that be Greg Fergus? In fact, it would be Greg Fergus. Oh my God. Okay, because that's not allowed. No, it's not. And what I thought was so hypocritical of the lamestream media was Andrew Shear came out right away and just said, okay, this is not on. This is completely improper and laid out a bunch of reasons why it was improper. And they all just attacked him as being a partisan attack dog. And how dare he go after Greg Fergus? And I thought, do none of you remember that from 2011 till 2015, Andrew Shear was the youngest blank of the House of Commons? Uh, I'm going to pick C, and that would be Speaker. Speaker of the House. That's exactly what he was for four years. Didn't have any scandals actually knows what the job entails because he did it for four years, not seven weeks like Greg Fergus. Andrew Shear knows that job. And so he is the one who should have been speaking on behalf of the official opposition because he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. And so now this, this kind of uh, ignited a debate in the House of Commons about the impartiality of the Speaker of the House, right? Yeah. And so while they were debating this in the House of Commons, uh, Greg Fergus decided to go to Washington, D.C. and give a speech to young liberals about what it was like to be a liberal. As the Speaker of the House which this is not allowed either. Yeah. And he's showing bias by doing this, which is exactly what they're debating in the House of Commons while he's gone, is his <laughs> bias. It's his bias towards the Liberal Party. Yeah. <laughs> well, and what's funny is during this speech, he presents it like a badge of honor that as a young Liberal, he happened to meet Klaus Schwab and that Klaus Schwab, after talking to him, said, yep, you should you should run, Greg, because you will win. And which I'm sure was just, you know, words of encouragement, like any university professor gives to a student. Oh, yeah, you're going to get a great job or whatever. But the fact that Greg Fergus boasted about that when talking to these young liberals in, in D.C. just, well, I guess it just shows a bit more of Mr. Fergus's bias. Yeah, well, like. This guy should be stepping down immediately. Yeah, absolutely he should. Yeah. But, uh, well, that's that's our Liberal Party. So uh, we'll be talking more about them and some other topics here. So 
Let's move on to one of our favorite liberals, well, one of mine anyway, and that's Uneven Stephen, Stephen Gilbo, the uh, Minister of Environment. Those right. people, by the way, you should follow the Stephen Gilbo Minister of Environment parody account. Whoever runs <laughs> that account is hilarious. Oh my God, it's so funny. <laughs> it is. It is so funny. Because yeah. like, but the but the thing about it is just like with um, you know, the Babylon Bee or or the Onion is that you don't know if it's true or not because it's <laughs> because the world is so wacky now that what they're saying as parody could actually be true. <laughs> so it's <laughs> there was one that was posted um on this parody account for Stephen Gilbo that I was just like I went oh my god I can't believe they're doing this but that doesn't surprise me and then I realized it was a parody account <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's great so yeah if you're anybody who's on x just just even if you don't follow it just just take a look at some of the posts because it's yeah <laughs> anyway so um Uneven Stephen decided he wanted to make friends with uh, Danielle Smith and Scott Moe at COP28. So he just announced unilaterally that Canada is actually going to uh, reduce methane emissions by 75% by 2030. And that uh, is the under the 75% of the 2019 emissions target. And that oil and gas emissions are now going to have to be 35 to 38% lower than 2019 levels. And well, seeing as uh, Alberta had actually reduced methane emissions by 45% under the, I can't even remember what year the levels that they had to match, but they, they actually managed to get methane emissions under control ahead of schedule. Well, now he's just and put more punitive measures on. So Danielle Smith said, um, no, you know what? Take this cap and trade system you've decided you want to impose upon us and the listeners in Quebec will know that well because Quebec still has a cap and trade electricity grid with a deal with a, with a California I believe it is and Ontario used to be part of that cap and trade system but anyway Daniel Smith said um how about Mr. Gibo you take that and you shove it right where the sun doesn't shine here's a little quote from Danielle Smith our province is simply done with what amounts to a steady stream of economic sanctions and punitive measures thrown upon our citizens and businesses to intentionally damage their livelihoods and the economic engine that disproportionately powers our national economy and the programs that Canadians rely on. Well said, Miss Smith. Wow, I wish I wish we had a premier that fought for their province the way she fights for Alberta. I mean, she's honestly the premier that they need right now. Uh, this makes me think back to, well, because I grew up in Alberta and I was uh, I was very young when the National Energy Program was implemented, but that's actually what was the, uh, I guess, the the spark that lit my, my political fire at 10 years old. And I've been following politics passionately ever since. And Pierre, Peter Lougheed, who was premier of Alberta at the time, had this same spark that Danielle Smith did. He he absolutely refused, and he was willing to get into a fight with Pierre Trudeau over that. And I think Ralph Klein would have been another one who would have been happy to stand up for Alberta that way. But since him, you know, there have there has been a lot of capitulation, and now Danielle Smith has finally just said, "No, we are not going to give in." And um, 
the more radical you guys get, the more we're going to dig in. And that's exactly what Alberta needs. That's what Canada needs. Every province needs a Danielle Smith. Yeah, absolutely. Every province needs a Danielle Smith. And I mean, Saskatchewan, you've got Scott Moe. I mean, he's, no matter what you want to think of him, uh, Scott Moe does fight for your province. Yes. Um, I... I don't have that in BC. Uh, David E.B. does not fight for our province. Um, he, you know, the more and more I see the NDP just capitulating to everything the the Liberals want, I just I, I can't understand why they're separate parties anymore. And 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 David E.B. in BC is a perfect example of that. And uh, and it seems like NDP all across the province or the country kind of are showing their true colors by just doing, you know, whatever they just fall in lockstep with the, with the liberals. And it's, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want anything that the NDP are selling, but you know, it's disheartening that, and it, that there's this political party in this country that just does not care to actually fight for the people they represent. Yeah. Now, um, I'm not old enough that I lived through this quote. Uh, if we have listeners who are probably 60 and above, they might remember this. But when the FLQ crisis happened in 1970, and the FLQ was a separatist, well, a militant separatist group in Quebec yeah. who had uh, kidnapped and murdered uh, uh, Cabinet Minister Pierre Laporte, uh, the only second political assassination in Canadian history. Yeah. And they had also had set off bombs elsewhere, and Pierre Trudeau had declared the War Measures Act. And there's a famous quote that he had when a CBC reporter was pressing him and he said, how far are you willing to go? And he said, well, just watch me. Danielle Smith decided to use that to her own advantage when the media was bothering her, pestering her and said, well, you know, how is Alberta going to respond to this? And she said, well, you'll just have to watch me. We are simply not going to comply. Like, boom. Yeah. No, I... I, I'm a I'm a big fan of of Danielle Smith's. I mean, of course, like any any human being, she has had some missteps, but she uh, but in the end, nobody fights for their province the way Danielle Smith fights for Alberta. No, exactly. Yeah, I mean that. Uh, I mean, we know her how disastrous her exit from politics was in 2014, but she uh, the time she spent in the political wilderness was obviously time well spent because I mean she's definitely reflected on it and wow she is yeah like i say she is the leader that that we all need right now yeah absolutely but i th i see this um and and we'll talk about more of these later in the show too but this is just going to be yet one more of the wedge issues that uh that the liberal party is is building and trying to to oh yeah cast off. yeah the, the liberal the liberals are going hard on environmental issues and um and I'm not saying that we shouldn't look after our environment, but by making it a political wedge issue, it's actually hurting the cause more than anything because uh, Canadians are tuning it out now. Um, it's not it's not moving the needle. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's talk a little bit about housing hell. Now, it's a 15 minute and nine second YouTube video produced by Pierre Poiliev. Well, I guess maybe not produced. He he narrated it anyway. And uh, he released the video on X and on YouTube. And well, 
it's got a lot of people talking and boy did it uh, raise some some ire in the house of commons when pierre polyev asked if justin trudeau would be the four millionth canadian to watch this video and take some tips about the housing crisis <laughs> <laughs> well there's now been five million people who have watched the video and um and the thing that's really I find very interesting is that it was released the same week that CBC announced that they were cutting six to seven hundred jobs, and um, and his video went viral. I mean, it's five million views, and he did it without the help of so-called mainstream media. It, you know, and that's the thing that that's a term I don't like anymore because CBC, CTV, Global. That's not the mainstream media anymore. The mainstream media is us. It's Canadian common sense. It's true north. It's, you know, it's these it's these independent guys now because we get more views than CBC gets. Right? Um, true North gets more readers than CBC and CTV combined. Um, I mean, this is like that's we're the mainstream now because you can't be mainstream if you're in the minority oh, and that's true. and CBC, CTV, those are the minority. Now a min less people, less Canadians get their news from CBC and CTV than they do from independent journalists. So they're not the mainstream anymore. We're the mainstream. True, but I will always be a very proud member of the small fringe minority. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although that, again, I mean, that's, you look at polling and stuff and that's looking less and less fringe now. Well, exactly. Yeah. Now, yeah. Here's what the, now the, the video, if you, if you haven't seen it, and I'm sure that you all have, if you're listening to this show, um, it's extremely well done. It points out a lot of facts. It, uh, it does offer up, obviously, Conservative Party solutions. It talks a lot about the lack of housing supply. It talks about the fact that we don't build enough houses and we haven't for 50 years. All that is true. Pierre Polyev is being disingenuous on one point, though, and probably a couple of other points, but this is the one that really flagged for me. Not once does he utter the word immigration. And when you bring in over 1 million Canadians a year, for, well, the last three years for sure, but probably more than that. And you're only building 200,000 houses or less. Obviously, you're going to have a supply crisis in housing because you can't add a million people a year without finding places to house them. And I know why I've been a listener, Trevor, is going to be, Tony, shut up. He's only not saying anything because he doesn't want to get attacked by the media. I get that. And I get that if he even brought the word immigration, they'd call him a racist. But Pierre, be honest with Canadians. Immigration is part of the problem. I'm not saying immigration is a bad thing. I'm not saying we don't need immigration. But when you're fl flooding the country with a million new bodies every year and not building places to house them, that also is a big factor on this housing crisis. And he's I don't know if he's afraid to admit it or if he just wants to overlook it, hoping that the rest of us will. But come on, Pierre, be honest with yourself. Yeah, that's that that is it's true. Um, but it's also we all know why he didn't. And you were correct in saying that. 
it's because you know if he wants the message of this video to get out there he can't have you know uh the legacy media uh tearing it apart right um the other the other there was one other issue i uh, that the, the in that video and that is that he's using the mayor of montreal as an example when quebec does not allow direct um dealings between civic governments and the federal government it all goes through the provincial government so that's that's one example that he maybe shouldn't have used in the uh in the video because it, it his his plan would actually not affect quebec's problems at all because they don't give federal funding directly to cities in in quebec um but the rest of the pro or the rest of the country it applies but in quebec it doesn't so he probably shouldn't have used that quebec uh example but but the thing is is that i know why he did and he did because he needs to win votes in quebec so he needs to convince quebecers that this is a, pol a like a plan or a policy that will help them and it might it may not um because like i said they can't there's no federal funding directly to to cities in in Quebec, but uh, um, but other than that, yeah, I mean it's. I, I, there was one reporter I saw who said that his him using the examples of Olivia Chow and uh, uh, oh the name of the mayor in and uh, Montreal escapes me at the moment, but by using those two mayors that it was misogynistic. <laughs> oh, of course, <laughs> and, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Just because the two worst you know, run the cities in the country or are run by women doesn't mean that he's misogynistic, yeah. right? It's just, it's just, he's pointing out the two worst run cities in the country. Yeah. Full stop. <laughs> no, I had to say, I was, I was actually impressed with um, one of the panels on the, on Vashi Capello's radio show when they were talking about it, because they had actually said um, that, oh, you know, he really get needs to, uh, get out there and get some earned media, et cetera. And it was funny, this pundit himself just said, well, I know I was just talking about him needing to get earned media, but well, he went to YouTube and got a lot more, got a lot more media attention from that than he did by actually uh, going to the media. And we yeah. thought, um, yeah, dumbass, that's kind of the message we've been delivering for a few years now that you guys are irrelevant. Yep, exactly. Yeah, because he had a, uh, yeah, he even had to had to admit that. Well, you know, by going out to YouTube and to X, Pierre Polyev was connecting directly with largely the millennials and Gen Z that use these platforms, and direct directly contacting more Canadians than uh, than we do. And said, um, "Yeah, but for some reason, you guys still don't get the point, do you?" <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, they don't. They don't get it. No, they've lost the message, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not criticizing the video as a whole. I mean, I think it was a great video. It was very well produced, and I appreciate that Pierre Poiliev didn't put his face in the video the whole time, so you know it's him because it's his voice, but he's not making it an ad for himself. Yes, he's talking about, you know, the conservative plan, et cetera, but it was really, I wouldn't call it a documentary. And I know that's how he presented it, but it's just, it's a great video. I'm, I got to give him full credit. I think that was really, really well done. Yeah. I saw a legacy media reporter, um, actually the same one who said that, that he was being misogynistic. Um, 
actually proclaimed it to be the best piece of political uh, messagery in Canadian history. So um, that's 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 pretty high praise coming from yeah. someone who because like the the reporter even said that he uh, you know I mean like if you look at the criticisms that the reporter had like calling him misogynistic and everything I mean obviously this reporter is you know a bit left leaning um, so but to say for that same reporter to say that the that it's the best piece of political messagery in Canadian history is is pretty good I mean that's I I would probably agree with that <laughs> yeah I, I would too so um so let's wrap it up we'll talk about the conservative party Pierre's party and the filibuster that got so much negative attention I think it's mm -hmm. hilarious honestly so what it was was that the bill to pass the final the fall fiscal update was coming up for a vote and so the Conservatives decided they were going to throw in 20,000 amendments to committee to be voted on. And what they wanted to do was get rid of the carbon tax. And so they, and Pierre Poli have even said, we can avoid this, this marathon session of Parliament if you just cancel the carbon tax for farmers, Canadians, etc. And of course, that wasn't on. And of course, because committees are stacked with Liberals and NDPs and Conservatives will always be a minority in committee. These 20,000 amendments were watered down to 200 because they said, well, many of them are asking for the same thing. So we had a marathon 30-hour session of Parliament, and it was completely scandalous that they wouldn't even take a break from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. to allow MPs to rest. And Karina Gould, in one of the most ultimate statements of hypocrisy in Canadian political history, okay, that's an exaggeration, but... She said, oh, and the Conservatives are spending $60,000 an hour of taxpayer money to keep part, the House of Commons running for this, this silly filibuster. I laughed out loud. I literally laughed out loud. <laughs> yeah, 60 grand. When, when the hell did they ever care about taxpayer money? I mean, what about We Charity and the billion dollars you gave them that was a scam? Or how about the 256 or million or whatever it was that you gave a former Liberal MP that didn't deliver on a single uh, item on the contract he was given? How about the, you know, the, the hundreds of millions of dollars that were given to, um, oh, you were talking about it before the show. Uh, Oh, yes. Medicago. Now, we reported on yeah. Medicago, the Quebec City vaccine manufacturer that was given $178 million to set up uh, for to make COVID vaccines. And what I, we didn't know until actually just two days ago is that we also had given them an extra $150 million uh, in a non-refundable uh, grant, I guess it would be, to help set up their plant. Well, that plant, by the way, shut down in February, never produced a single vaccine. And the government said, well, we're going after their parent company to get try to get back 40 million of the 328 million dollars you and I gave them not to produce a single vaccine. So take your 60 grand an hour and shove it, Miss Gould. Yeah. Well, and you know, if you look on X and you'll see that there's, you know, 
liberal MP after liberal MP after liberal MP just posting the same crap about how the the conservatives don't care about Ukraine. And what do the liberal or what do the conservatives have against Ukraine and all of this? And they're trying to frame it as the conservatives hate Ukraine. When in reality, this is just about the carbon tax. It's like, it's like, just get rid of the carbon tax and this is all over. And, um, but they keep trying to frame it as the conservatives hate Ukraine. Well, you know, it might not be about Ukraine, but there's a lot of problems with Ukraine. Like the fact that Zelensky just bought himself a yacht in the middle of a war when he obviously doesn't make enough money to buy a yacht. Like, what the hell? You know? Um, the fact that the war is a stalemate it is not going to be won by either side. And we're just wasting money on it now. Like, there's... But besides that, this wasn't about Ukraine. This was about the carbon tax and about Canadians. And it's just hilarious watching the liberal MPs try to frame it as something it's not. Yep. And you know, it's those same MPs. And I've I've watched a lot of them that they are all also posting out that, oh, this is more of those far right Republican style tactics. And I just roll my eyes every time I read that. So, I mean, you, you know what they're... Uh, you know what their talking points for the next election are going to be because they're telling you right now. Yeah, and and you know what? That's something that you and I were talking about yesterday. Was um, the next election is a lot closer than I think people think. Yeah, you bet. We're going to get into that right after the filibuster too, because it's yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. Now uh, I'm old enough to remember when Ryan Mulroney's government introduced the GST in 1991, and he had a minority in the Senate, so he actually went to the Queen to get permission to appoint an additional eight senators so that he would have a majority so they could pass the GST. At that time, the Liberal senators engaged in a filibuster, and the lamestream media celebrated the Liberals. They were heroes, all these people you'd never heard of are now fighting for Canadians against the GST, and they were being just absolutely you know celebrated by the mainstream media for their courage to read names from the phone book and enter them into the record just to stall the gst well shoot ahead 30 years and suddenly these awful conservatives how dare they waste taxpayers time and money how dare they delay the business of parliament in this filibuster well hypocrisy much yeah, you know, it's actually kind of funny that you brought up the uh, GST. This is a different, this isn't, you know, related to what we were just talking about. But I find it really interesting that in 2024, Canada's na servicing Canada's national debt is going to be so expensive that every single penny earn, or, or every single penny that is collected from the GST will be needed to service the debt. Wow. Every single penny of the GST will be servicing Canada's national debt. Crazy. I did not know that. Yikes. And, 
And so the, do you remember what the what the GST's um initial purpose was? I've forgotten that. The original purpose of the GST was to pay or was to uh bring down deficits so that once the deficit was eliminated, the GST could be eliminated. Oh. And now every last penny of it is being used to pay the interest on our debt. Well, that's scary. Yeah. So one more point about the liberal hypocrisy, or the, I guess even the media hypocrisy, is I do pay attention to a couple of shows that watch House of Commons committee work. And there was one particular one I was listening to, and it was a committee where an RCMP commissioner was was to be to appear before the committee, but because a conservative MP Larry Brock showed up on committee, and it wasn't a committee he normally is on, but that's okay under the parliamentary rules, you're you are allowed to sit in. He got two words out of his speech, and every single liberal got up, oh, point of order, point of order, to stall him. And he never did get it, get to ask the one question he was going to ask because they continued to stall him. They continued to jump up and interrupt him. And then one liberal jumped up and said, okay, well, I, I, make, I move to adjourn the meeting. And they shut it down before he even asked a single question. So wow. you want to talk about filibustering, you want to talk about stall tactics. This same liberal party does this in so many different com committees. So, um, yeah, again, you know what? You guys can shove it if you want to start complaining. Well, they famously did it during the We Charity uh, Committee investigations. Right, yeah, good point. Yeah. yeah. All right, so let's wrap the show up talking about, well, what we've already hinted at is that that May election might just be a little sooner than you think. Yeah, I think it's actually going to be uh, fairly early in the new year. Um, and I think it's going to be the shortest possible campaign because um, Stephen Harper made the mistake of having a long campaign um, and that backfired on him. And he uh, lost to Justin Trudeau in 2015. Um, had it been a 35 day campaign rather than a 47 or 48 day campaign, uh, Trudeau would have won in a minority, um, not a majority. So I think. I think Trudeau is actually going to try and make this the shortest possible campaign, which is 35 days. And I think it's going to be fairly early in the spring. I don't think it's going to be May. I think it's I, I think it's going to be at the latest May, but I think it's going to be in March. I think March is actually a pretty fair assessment. If you have an election in March, that means people are going to be out campaigning in February and a winter election always favors the incumbents because nobody wants to be trying to put up at campaign signs in the, into the frozen ground or into the snow. And yeah. February, January, February are our coldest months. That's when the, we get the crappiest of the crappy winters. And so, yeah, that would actually be a, well, quote unquote, good time for the government to go to an election. But you, as we've teased that through the show here, you're already hearing the talking points they're going to use. You've already seen, you're seeing now the wedge issues. You're seeing that just like just like his stepdad, Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau is going to <laughs> Alberta as, as the bad guy here. <laughs> yeah, you caught that, eh? <laughs> his stepdad. <laughs> yeah, well, his real dad never had to worry about elections. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, exactly. So, um, so just like Pierre Trudeau, Justin Pierre Trudeau was going to wedge Alberta as uh, as the bad guy, as, as the environmental demon. He's going to wedge Pierre Polyev as being a Donald Trump. And you're, you're seeing it all already. And it's it's predictable as hell. And yeah. and then, Lewis, you had mentioned when we were talking yesterday that, yeah, this whole uh, far-right MAGA thing just isn't working. But yet they're going to continue to beat this dead horse. And his MPs are continuing to, you know, keep whipping up Pierre Polyev is the devil. And uh, I don't think Canadians are going to buy it. No, and they're not. I mean, the Liberals are in third place now, federally. And uh, the Conservatives are just, they're so far out in front. I mean, they're sitting at 42 to 44%, depending on polls. And uh, normally, 39% is enough to win a majority in Canada. But a 39% is not, 39% for the Liberals, is not the same as 39% for the Conservatives. For the Conservatives to win a majority, they need over 40%. And that's simply due to where support generally, traditionally comes from for the different parties, right? And when you've got ridings in the prairies that are, you know, won by 80, 75, 80% of the vote for the Conservatives, you still only get one seat, even if you only, even if that seat is won by 45% of the vote, or if it's won by 80% of the vote, you still only get one seat. So uh, in the prairies, the conservatives, you know, have ridings where they do win by 75 or 80% of the vote, some of them as high as 90%. So that does not translate into more seats the way it would for the liberals, because the liberals typically win with that right around, you know, 40 to 50% of the vote. Um, so they're, you know, support is more broadly spread out, meaning that they need 39% to win in a majority, but conservatives need, you know, into the 40s to win a majority. But because the liberals and the NDP are basically tied and they're splitting the vote everywhere, uh, this is, you know, showing that the conservatives right now could super majority. And it would be 212 seats or so uh, is what's being projected at the moment. And that would be a super majority for the Conservatives, which would be the second largest government uh, election win in Canadian history behind um, Mulroney in his first or his, uh, yeah, his first term. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, right now, and it's uh, it's not even polling anymore. I mean, it's just factual that two-thirds of Canadians don't want Justin Trudeau to be prime minister. And he's uh, he's just too dumb to understand that. And I've even heard some lamestream media pundits say that, you know, once your numbers get down this low for this long, there's just no coming back. And I, yeah. so I think that Justin Trudeau is going to uh, do one last ditch effort and say, no, no, people still love me. I don't care that our donors are are walking away from us. And I don't care that Canadians say they don't love me. They love me and I'm going to prove it. Yeah. Yep. No, that's basically, that's exactly what's going to happen. Because when 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 you're leading a government where whose support is down this low, you have two options. One is call an election because if you win, everyone has to shut up and fall in line. Yep. And, or you step down and resign. Um, but that's, 
that takes uh you know character something justin doesn't have so uh, i don't i expect him to you know go down in flames rather than uh you know gracefully bow out yeah he's too much of a narcissist he'll definitely take the ship down with him so yeah yeah all right canada well i think we're going to wrap it up there um want to thank you very much for joining us great to have you back lewis and until next week it is tony in saskatchewan and lewis out here in bc good night thank canada